In the final part of his series about his book, Guns and Rubles, The Defence Industry in the Stalinist State, Professor of Economics at the University of Warwick, Mark Harrison, discusses the relationship between Stalin and the Soviet Union military and industrial leaders. A lot of people write about uh, the Soviet military-industrial complex. And uh, I have to say, I think this is uh, quite a complex issue. It helps to know a little bit about the history of the term. The guy who invented the term military-industrial complex was uh, President Eisenhower, uh, the United States president in the 1950s. And Eisenhower invented it to talk about his own country. Uh, Eisenhower was uh, a general. He was one of the outstanding uh, U.S. Uh, Army generals of World War II. Uh, but in power, he became very concerned about the ability of uh, the big uh, defense contractors and the military to get together and lobby the government to extract resources, you know, to get a bigger military budget, to spend more on weapons, perhaps, than America really needed. And uh, so he introduced this term in, in uh, I believe, in, in essentially his retirement speech, and it had quite a big impact. People began writing about the American military-industrial complex, and not surprisingly, they also began to wonder about the Soviet military-industrial complex. Now, when we look at the Soviet defense industry and we look at the records that we have, you've got to bear in mind that these are mostly from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. After the mid-60s, the Soviet archives are now uh, and probably likely to remain closed. So the best period that we have for evidence is the period of Stalin's dictatorship. And it's uh, fairly clear, I think, that Stalin was very aware of the dangers of having a military-industrial complex he didn't want one. He wanted to be in control. He didn't want powerful lobbies uh, telling him how much he had to spend on this, that and the other. So he had a very kind of love-hate relationship with the, the army and with the defence industry. He wanted to spend a lot of money on defence because he wanted to be sure of his external position. But he did not want to spend more than was necessary. By the same token, he wanted uh, a defence industry that was big and based on mass production that could gear up quickly in the, in, in the case of war. But he didn't want a fat defence industry with uh, lots of uh, bloated contracts and people uh, with expense accounts. He wanted a, a lean operation. So he um, he did exploit, I think, the interests of the army and the defence industry in, in making his rise to power. In the 20s, uh, the army and the defence industry were in a pretty bad way, having come out of a disastrous civil war. Uh, the country, you know, started the 20s with a famine and uh, the economy was in pretty bad shape. Soviet leaders felt very vulnerable to a renewal of international conflict. And Stalin was one, I think, who saw that by imposing a dictatorship and a command system he could mobilise resources into these things and make sure the country was safe. And to that extent he had close ties with the military, he had uh, uh, close colleagues who were well, former or existing army officers and this sort of thing. But nonetheless, uh, once in power he had no favourites and he took very careful steps to ensure well, really, a couple of things. One is to ensure that no soldiers became too powerful. He did not want to, to be uh, turned out of office by a military coup, and indeed, uh, uh, I think he made absolutely certain that there never was one. 
but he also didn't want uh, the uh, the army and the defence industry getting together to form this kind of powerful military industrial lobby. And he, uh, on various occasions, you see, the um, uh, the Red Army leaders uh, made what you might think of as sort of bids for that kind of influence. You know, they were very concerned about how defence industry was run. They were concerned about their inability to impose their own rules and procedures on defence industry. Uh, take secrecy, for example. The army often had trouble getting information out of the defence industry that it needed uh, to be sure it was it was running its contracts efficiently. Uh, for example, how much does a weapon cost? Often industrial leaders would say, you can't know this because it's a military secret. It's too important to tell to the soldiers. And uh, that sort of thing the Red Army found very frustrating. Uh, they wanted to be able to have much more control over who managed defence industry, uh, the information they could get from defence industry, and they made proposals to Stalin to bring appointments and management under army control. And Stalin always slapped it down. There was one uh, uh, military leader in particular, a guy called uh, Mikhail Tukhachevsky, who is, uh, was a very famous military strategist, uh, very far-sighted in terms of what he thought about mechanised war. He was very concerned about uh, advancing Soviet military technology as quickly as possible, and he wanted to be in control of it. One of the things he did was uh, he was very closely associated with these proposals to bring uh, the defence industry under military control. Uh, he kind of made his own little power grabs every now and then, trying to bring particular branches of new technology under his own office. For example, rocket technology. Uh, he was a big patron of uh, rocket science and of the rocket engineers. Essentially, it all ended badly. Now, it ended badly for quite a number of reasons, but I, I figure that one of them was... Stalin did not trust Tukhachevsky partly because he saw him as a potential father of a military-industrial complex. And uh, so when Tukhachevsky was shot in 1937, uh, he, he was uh, shot because Stalin said he was a Gestapo agent. Um, but there was this background to it, which I think has some significance. So while Stalin lived, there was no military-industrial complex and really no danger of one. I think that Soviet leaders after Stalin were less, they were less worried about it, and they were less successful in keeping these things under control. It's a good bet that when the archives for the 70s and the 80s are open, we will find much more collaboration between the army and industry in uh, lobbying the government for weapon systems and budgets and that sort of thing. Uh, but we don't, that, that's speculation. We don't know, know this, and I think we will not know it now for a long time. So did Stalin use more of a divide-and-rule approach? Divide-and-rule, I think, was a general principle for Stalin. He, he, he liked to keep people scrapping with each other. Uh, he liked to keep the people around him unsure of their position and in competition with each other. Uh, I think one of his rules was if there was a problem, he wanted to know about it first. So he particularly valued people who, if they knew of a problem, would come to him first and not try and solve it behind his back. Those were the people that he trusted particularly. Uh, so I think it was a general rule for him that he, he liked the people around him to be competing with each other, but he also applied it organisationally. And so I think he did apply it to the army and industry. He did not want them under one roof. He wanted them in different agencies, uh, having to uh, bargain with each other, and he wanted to be able to see the bargains that they came to. Uh, 
and I think it, it worried him uh, to see any one person with too much power, with too much oversight. So, for example, by the uh, mid-30s, there was one minister for the whole of industry uh, who was one of Stalin's closest associates, uh, a, f a fellow Georgian, a guy called Sergo or Johnny Kidzi. I think uh, eventually Stalin um, fell out with him primarily because he saw Johnny Kidzi having too much power. He drove all Johnny Kidzi to suicide, but after that he broke up the empire that all Johnny Kidzi had acquired uh, and gave it to a whole bunch of people. And there was, wasn't going to be any big uh, industry czar after all Johnny Kidzi. So did Stalin's rise to power owe anything to the military and industrial leaders? Well, I, th I think it did. And I think Stalin was always very concerned about military power because of World War I. You could not be a Bolshevik and forget that the Bolsheviks came to power because Russia was defeated in World War I. And the reason Russia was defeated in World War I was because when under, put under, indeed, not very sustained attack, uh, Germany was attacking Russia, but remember that uh, uh, Germany had seven-eighths of its armed forces in France. So it was a small fraction of German military powers directed against Russia. Uh, Russia was overstretched, unable to defend itself, and uh, the result was that the country fell apart. The country fell apart because uh, the peasants uh, had nothing to buy in the internal markets. R Russian industry was supplying um, the army with weapons, had nothing to sell to the countryside. The peasants had nothing to buy. They stopped selling food. There was a food shortages in the towns. The workers revolted. The regime fell. Stalin was intensely concerned that that should not happen again. And he was particularly concerned in the 20s because uh, Europe was at peace, but for how long? Every now and then there were diplomatic rows and war scares. And every time there were rows and war scares, his secret police were telling him that the peasants in the countryside and the workers in the streets were saying, oh, well, if war comes, the regime may fall. Which side will I be on? Not sure. Some would, would be ready to defend. Some would say, well, you know, I'll be happy to shoot a few communists myself. And so he had very firmly embedded in his consciousness the idea that when there are in external tensions, the country becomes more unstable internally. And so he, he went into his uh, you know, bringing about his uh, ascent to power with the idea that you always have to be looking two ways. You had to be looking outside the country at the threats outside. You had to be looking inside the country at the threats inside the country and the way they interact. And so when you look at what he did in his internal policies to bring agriculture under state control, to impose a centralised command system and industrialise rapidly, you can see that what he was doing was ensuring the existence of an integrated national economy from which nobody could opt out if war broke out. And it was uh, in many ways a costly, disastrously costly process in which millions of people died or were killed. But the result was that when World War II did show up, the country did not fall apart. It was held together by ruthless dictatorship and uh, by a command system that was already in place. So Stalin uh, had military interests very much at the core of what he was doing. He coordinated these with military leaders and uh, he was very concerned that the industry that developed in the country should be attuned to the needs of the military to fight the next war. So uh, I think in all those ways, it wasn't hard to find a bunch of soldiers who would support him and go along with what he was doing. 
as I said, the one thing he didn't want was soldiers who grew fat and got business interests, uh, which of course is something that you can see in many countries on, around the world today. You know, you look at uh, Pakistan, for example. You know, the army there is uh, in business in its own right. Uh, that was not what Stalin wanted, and uh, he knew how to avoid it. So were there any privileges associated with being part of the defence sector? That's uh, an interesting question. Yes, there were privileges, but you paid a price for them. So I think for people in the defence industry, uh, the defence industry was able to attract the brightest and the best. It was able to attract people who had grand plans to go into space and to fly farther and faster. You know, it, this was a society in which if you wanted to distinguish yourself, you, you knew you could never distinguish yourself by becoming a billionaire. You couldn't go into business in the Western sense. So if you wanted to distinguish yourself, it was going to be in some other way. And lots and lots of talent flowed into the defence industry, into uh, inventions, research and development, and into the military. They paid a price for it in two ways. One was secrecy. So they couldn't trumpet their achievements. Uh, there were lots of people, in, for example, in military invention, who, whose names were kept secret for decades. They did have a reputation internally, you know, within the defence sector. People knew who'd invented this and who'd invented that. And these reputations were very precious to them. But nonetheless, it was within a very narrow group of people. So that was one price they paid. The other price they paid was Stalin's attention. Stalin was very interested in what they were doing. He had favourites. To be Stalin's favourite was, in a way, to be in the worst situation. There's an aircraft designer, uh, Yakovlev, who uh, uh, had this reputation of being Stalin's favourite. And uh, he tells a story. One day, Stalin suddenly turned to him and said, I've been hearing that you're a thief. Yakovlev says, what do you mean? Well, that, that you, you're taking the money that we give you and you're not spending it on you know, on designing aircraft and so on. It's all going into sort of, you know, medals and holidays and cars and so on. And Yakovlev was, he was shocked and appalled. He was appalled because he knew if, if were, Stalin could find anything, it was a death sentence. And uh, they called in all the top guys, you know, the ministers and so on, and they went over Yakovlev's account. And Yakovlev was intensely relieved because they could show that Yakovlev actually had less money than the other designers. And that was the sort of risk that you carried if you became close to Stalin. Stalin never gave you a gift. If he gave you something and he didn't tell you what you wanted back for it, all that meant was you'd find out later. You could never assume that he was giving you something for free. Uh, it reminds me a little of the opening scene in The Godfather. Uh, you remember this guy comes to Don Corleone and he uh, asked Don Corleone for a favour and there's a lot of argument about whether he's going to get it or not, and the favour is to sort somebody out. And then he says, Don Corleone, I'm so grateful, what can I do for you? And Don Corleone says, we won't talk about that now. And Stalin was like that. Uh, if he did something for you, you knew you would have to pay for it, but you didn't know when. But what you couldn't do was treat it as a gift and spend it.